0: Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Chris Smith. Today is the 33rd anniversary of the
1: passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA.
0: And we will celebrate the ADA and its achievements, and we'll hear about where there is much-needed room for improvement with advocates and activists from here in Western Mass, Chris Palamas, Jeremy makeover Dubs, Lynn Horan, Maria Guarino, and Shivaji Kumar. But first... And Ammon is how you say your name, right?
2: Yeah, that's very very unusual that people pronounce it correctly.
0: Um, I, well, I've heard Emily Brewster say it so many times, uh, okay, and plus <laughs> I would listen to word word matters before I started working here.
2: Usually, there's some variation on "Amen" as the, but you know, I respond to anything. Amen. No. Time for our weekly Word
0: Nerd segment, but not with our resident wordster, Emily Brewster. She's on
1: vacation! She
0: is on vacation. So we've got an excellent substitute word nerd today. Ammon Shea, who's an editor and researcher at Merriam-Webster, our dictionary in Springfield. He's the author of a number of books on language, like Reading the OED, which you read cover to cover, the Oxford English Dictionary, Bad English, and The Phone Book, the only social history ever published of The Telephone Book. He's also the co-host of The Former NEPM podcast, Word Matters, which I loved but made me angry when I didn't work at this radio station because NEPM stole my word nerd, Emily Brewster, for that podcast. (laughs) Uh, But they also had Peter Sokolowski here, our jazz host, who also is with Merriam-Webster. Em and Shay, thank you
2: for joining us. Delighted to be here.
1: I feel like we should call him the understudy, not the substitute. What
2: do you prefer? I think some variation on ersatz Emily ah. <laughs> works. I like that. Ersatz
0: Emily, Am <laughs> and Shay. Oh, that rolls off the tongue. I do love it. Yes. <laughs> First, before we talk about what I know you for from Merriam-Webster, which is talking about words that are trending, your book titles are fascinating. And the fact that you literally read the entire Oxford English Dictionary and then wrote a book about it.
2: It all makes sense in a certain light, which is that... Um, Up to that point, I was mostly employed as a furniture mover in New York City. Um, There there is a very logical progression here. And I thought that reading dictionaries would be less work than carrying pianos up flights of stairs. And it it was, in fact, less work in a certain vein. Coming from the perspective of somebody who was working 70 or 80 hours a week carrying pianos and file cabinets up and down flights, (laughs) it seemed like a, a reasonable course of action.
0: Do you automatically get to become a dictionary editor if you read a dictionary cover to cover?
2: I think it's an unspoken rule. Uh, yeah.
0: That t- criteria needs to be tightened just a little and maybe just make it the OED. <laughs> yeah, you have to read the OED. <laughs> None of this abridged Merriam-Webster exactly. nonsense. Right. You start getting into collegiate editions and it's just sort of like, <laughs> come on, y'all. So, Ammon, what you do, and I know you publish frequently on Merriam-Webster.com, is talk about the words that people are looking up.
2: One of the things that's right particular about Merriam-Webster is that we've always been what we call a descriptive dictionary, which is that we exist to catalog the language as it's used. And as we move into the internet era, one of the ways in which that's most apparent is by gauging people's interest in specific words. One of the ways that we measure usage is Searches.
0: What you do is frequently, for Merriam-Webster, write about the words that people have been interested in and why they're looking them up, what might have happened in the news that has caused people to look up certain words. So then there's a couple of words um, that you have told us about that people have been looking up frequently as of late in the last couple of weeks. One of those words... <laughs> I think may have to do with the Supreme Court is legacy. Is that why people have been looking up the word <laughs> legacy?
2: Uh, yeah, well, legacy spiked, and it was right after Wesley had announced that they were ending legacy admissions. And so yes, it was influenced by the Supreme Court when they recently struck down most cases of race-based affirmative action. And so once that happened, a lot of people started looking at this idea of legacy admissions. Uh, And we define legacy as obviously a number of ways, but the relevant sense that we give to it is a candidate for membership in an organization such as school or fraternal order. And quite honestly, I think it's more often schools than fraternal orders these days, uh, who is given special (laughs) status because of a familial relationship to a member. We do not address whether that is, you know, because they are more likely to donate money or things like that. And I think that that is for many people kind of part of the, the issue here in terms of schools. That's none of our business as a <laughs> defining work. Um, we just define the word as it's used.
0: It is a fascinating way to, to take the pulse of English speakers, though, when this kind of thing happens. So when you are looking at the data that's coming in to merriam does it delight you to see like on a certain day when a certain news story has happened with a particular word that you, you get into the office and you look it up and like, oh, yes, look at that. Everybody's <laughs> looking up legacy today.
2: <laughs> well, it depends, you know, and it varies. Sometimes it is a delight. Sometimes it's odd um sometimes <laughs> it is quite frankly just depressing mm-hmm. um other times it's a little intriguing you know when you when you open up the database in the morning and the first thing you see is that schadenfreude is trending you know that somebody <laughs> has stepped in it somewhere and did, it's probably no richly one, deserved i mean um, no that, one see that, avenue q
3: schadenfreude making
2: Yeah. And one of the things that's also really kind of great about the fact that things trend is that we frequently see people respond to it by saying, "Um, I can't believe people need to look that word up. But what this illustrates is that people do not just go to a dictionary to look up the meaning of a word because they do not know it. They go to the dictionary for all kinds of things. They want to settle a bet with their uncle. They want to find (laughs) out the right pronunciation. They want to see if something is in fact included in the dictionary. There's a mistaken idea, I think, with many people that a word isn't real until it goes Into the dictionary a word is a word is a word if you use it as a word you know specific meaning as far as we're concerned that's a word that doesn't mean that we're automatically going to put it in the dictionary but putting it in the dictionary is not what confers a special status to a word Words become words through use, not because we write them down or the Oxford English Dictionary writes them down. But for a lot of people, that's why they will go look up a word is to see if it's in the dictionary.
0: It does help so you with settle it, bets with uncles, though, if you're like, look, absolutely. irregardless is in the dictionary. I promise you, <laughs> this go horse, look.
1: This is the horse he rides. I, I would also <laughs> say that it helps with your Scrabble score because as soon as it gets in your dictionary, it's legal to use. Merriam-Webster, right, <laughs> right. the so, official Scrabble
0: right. Dictionary.
2: Shameless plug. Thwarting uncles and settling Scrabble scores for hundreds of years now, that's our, our tag.
0: What are some words that surprised you or interested you that people were looking up besides legacy in the last couple of weeks?
2: A very odd one was machigana. Um, I was going
1: to bring this up because it was on your list. The juxtaposition of having that word and polemic in the same list of things that people are looking up was fascinating.
2: So, so there's a columnist, a sports columnist for The Guardian, which is a London-based newspaper. And his name is Daniel Harris. And he was writing about the um, Wimbledon finals. And he's talking about Djokovic and Alcaraz, and he wrote, I am in absolute awe of these two Meshuggahna's. I cannot wait to see what happens next, and I have not the slightest clue as to what's coming next. These are the days of our lives, people. <laughs> and and that, that kind of prompted a lot of people to look up Meshuggahna, because I think it wasn't entirely clear that he knew what the word meant, or mm-hmm. that he was using it in the same sense that many people use it, or that many people, in fact, just didn't know the word Meshurgana. It is not the most common word in our dictionary. It's a, it's a Yiddish borrowing, mm-hmm. and we define it as a foolish or eccentric person. You know, I I guess you could call these two tennis players foolish or eccentric people, but I myself would not use it in that way. But um, sometimes a word will come up like that and it it, it appears either out of context or it appears in a new context or it it just is a word that people aren't familiar with and that can drive interest in it.
0: And that's how words change. Somebody who writes for the London Times or whatever about tennis is going (laughs) to redefine what Meshuggah means because it didn't sound like it made sense to me either in that regard. (laughs) Although I don't follow tennis, those people could be Totally ridiculous, who knows? If
1: we're going the eccentric route, then I guess it kind of makes sense considering this year's Wimbledon has been a a wild ride, but still
2: We can call it an extended use. You know, I mean, here's a a classic case of this, which is maybe a little more well known than Daniel Harris's use of Michigan was Bugs Bunny using the word Nimrod to describe Elmer Fudd. I looked it up, it was actually Daffy Duck.
4: Exactly what I was wondering, my little Nimrod.
2: And up to that point, Nimrod had a, a kind of biblical application. Nimrod was the mighty hunter. Nimrod was used up to that point as word for a mighty hunter. And in this particular cartoon, Bugs Bunny is being hunted by Elmer Fudd, and he refers to him as Nimrod, kind of in a jocular fashion, one might say satirical. But after that, he kind of took on the connotation of foolish person. And so Nimrod, through semantic drift powers kind of shifted from Mighty Hunter to somebody you would make fun of.
5: Precisely what I
4: was wondering, my little nimrod.
2: I love that. (laughs) This is how words can change.
0: We're speaking with Ammon Shea, who is Ursatz Emily Brewster, our resident wordster from Merriam-Webster, on vacation. What's another word, Ammon, that you've seen trend lately that uh, piqued your interest at merriamwebster.com?
2: A target letter received a lot of attention. And I should say that we will refer to multiple word entities sometimes as a word Mm -hmm. because it's an entity. So target. Don't write angry letters. Target letters, two words. Right, yes. We are aware of the fact that there is a space between target and letter. We still call it a word. And you can too. (laughs) The target letter was very much in the news, obviously, because Donald Trump, our former president, said that he had received a target letter from Jack Smith special prosecutor who's investigating him in the January 6th case. We define it as um, a letter from a U.S. attorney saying that the person to whom the letter is sent is a target in a federal grand jury investigation. And this is a kind of recent word in our our files. We have our our earliest citation for this that we have. It's from 1975. And it was in a political case in which the governor of uh, Maryland, one Marvin Mandel, announced that he had received what is referred to as a target letter from Jervis S. Finney, who was the U.S. attorney from Maryland. I feel like it's kind of a shame that jervis has fallen aside yeah as a, as a first name it's totally great name i love that jervis mm-hmm. it feels like it's uh it's got a lot of prosecutorial heft to it, isn't
1: it i mean yes i feel like if you're you're given the name jervis and you decide to retain it that law is pretty much your only option but also i feel like it's, it's maybe a little too close to jerk and jerk face
2: it is a case of what we call nominative determinism i guess if your name named jervis you really have you know you're not going to become a house painter you're going to no. become a man of the law. But anyway, Jervis sent a a target letter and Jervis was not the first one to send a target letter. And I I apologize. I'm just going to call him Jervis from now on. Okay, me too. Uh, But there was a Washington Post article in 1975 describing it. It referred to what legal observers referred to as a target letter. And so this is an interesting case of the first appearance of a word is not always occurring at the same time as the first appearance of the thing. And so we always distinguish between the word and the thing in terms of when it enters the language. For instance, people were wearing t-shirts probably for hundreds of years, but we don't have the word for a t-shirt until like the early 20th century. So people have probably been getting target letters from some decades prior to 1975. We don't really know.
1: So polemic is on your list of things that people were searching for, which is a word that I love, but why were people looking up polemic?
2: We'll, we'll try to approach this one a little bit delicately, I think. Um, <laughs> every once in a while, um, somebody, you know, a writer or a public figure or a speaker will use a word in such a particular fashion that it focuses public attention on that, that word. And that was the case with Polemic when a columnist for the New York Post. Mara Siegler was writing about a press dinner that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. gave as part of his presidential campaign. Writing for the New York Post, she used the word polemic to describe an occurrence of this dinner. And I'll I'll just give you her quote. Page six regrets to report that a press dinner to boost Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s presidential campaign descended into a foul bout of screaming and polemic farting (laughs) Tuesday night.
1: And this is why I love this
2: word. (laughs) Farting? So uh, suddenly people were... I guess, you know, the kind of the general mood with people saying, I didn't know there was such a thing as polemic farting. I should look up what polemic <laughs> means. Maybe it's something different than I Maybe thought. Maybe it's something I and, ate. And so, you know, polemic, typically when we use it, uh, most often we use it as a noun, meaning an aggressive attack on a refutation of the opinions or principles of another person. But it can also work as an adjective. In this case, it is functioning as an adjective. It, it modifies the, what we would refer to as the gerund farting. Um <laughs> And in this sense, it usually has the meaning and, and I love this word because it reminds me of Woodhouse um, disputatious meaning Ooh, inclined yes. to dispute. I mean she could have gone with disputatious farting, but quite honestly I think <laughs> polemic farting has a nicer ring. Oh for
1: yeah, <laughs> no, it just rolls off the tongue. It's so beautiful. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> wow.
2: So that's what, you know, can drive language use.
0: Uh, Angry farts. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> don't be. Better out than in, as I always say. <laughs> those ideas that come out of your brain. Let your farts fight their own battles. Yes. Ammon Shay, thanks so much for doing this with us this oh, week. My pleasure. Would you be willing to be Ursat's Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster, again next week so that she can continue to enjoy her time off this summer?
2: Absolutely. Would love to.
1: Fantastic.
0: Ammon Shay, an editor and researcher at Merriam-Webster, our dictionary in Springfield, the author of Reading the OED, Bad English, The Phone Book, and more. Thanks so much.
2: Delighted to be here.
1: Up next, July is Disability Pride Month, and today marks the 33rd anniversary of the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act. We'll talk with Christos Palamis, Jeremy McElmer Dubbs, Lynn Horan, Marie Guarino, and Shivaji Kumar.
0: You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. This is from Title 42 of the Americans with Disabilities Act. The Congress finds that physical or mental disabilities in no way diminish a person's right to fully participate in all aspects of society, yet many people with physical or mental disabilities have been precluded from doing so because of discrimination.
1: Historically, society has tended to isolate and segregate individuals with disabilities, and despite some improvements, such forms of discrimination against individuals with disabilities continue to be a serious and pervasive social
0: problem. Discrimination against individuals with disabilities persists in such critical areas as employment, housing, public accommodations, education, transportation, communication, recreation, institutionalization, health services, voting, and access to public services.
1: Unlike individuals who have experienced discrimination on the basis of race, color, sex, National, origin, religion, or age, individuals who have experienced discrimination on the basis of disability have often had no legal recourse to redress such discrimination.
0: It is the purpose of this chapter to provide a clear and comprehensive national mandate for the elimination of discrimination against individuals with disabilities. To provide clear, strong, consistent, enforceable standards addressing
1: discrimination against individuals with disabilities.
0: To ensure that the federal government plays a central role in enforcing the standards established in this chapter on behalf of individuals with disabilities.
1: And to invoke the sweep of congressional authority, including the power to enforce the 14th Amendment and to regulate commerce in order to address the major areas of discrimination faced day to day by people with disabilities.
0: Joining us to celebrate the anniversary of the 1990 signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act are Shivaji Kumar from Amherst, who practices and researches digital accessibility and is currently leading a team of trainers, developers and testers as an accessibility manager at a U.S. bank. He's also developing and implementing a strategic roadmap for evangelizing accessibility for internal stakeholders for the company.
1: Florence's Christos Palamis, who with his wife Judy, were at the White House signing in 1990, along with a couple thousand advocates from around the country, the largest signing ceremony in history. Before the federal bill, four years in state government under (laughs) Governor's caucus, Chris started doing trainings on the law after it was signed and went on to found the Amherst and Springfield-based Stavros Center for Independent Living. Also, he's been instrumental in developing the Vermont Center for Independent Living and currently serves as the Executive Director of Independent Living
0: resources. We're also joined by Jeremy McComer Dubbs, the chairman of the Northampton Disability Commission. He's a newly announced candidate for Ward 4 City Council in Northampton. He is a musician with the band Bunnies and has a long musical relationship with Charles Thompson, aka Black Francis, and the Amherst originating band Pixies. There is a forthcoming indie film called Tallywacker that is largely. But somewhat loosely based on his life and experiences.
1: Maria Guarino. Guarino, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Maria Guarino taught and worked in Northampton for five years. She studies disability justice at Teachers College, Columbia University, and also happens to be Jerry McCombs' McElmer- campaign manager.
0: Lynn Horan is a Holyoke-based visual artist, teacher, activist, public schools art advocate, and vice chair of the Holyoke Commission on Disability. And they all join us on this day of celebration of the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act I will say that it was Shivaji Kumar's uh, appearance on the show a couple months ago He told us July is disability awareness month disability pride month and that we should do something in regards to the anniversary of the signing of the ADA and And we said yes we said yes (laughs) I saw you at the uh, asparagus festival as well and that's where uh, we began to to conspire thank you so much for thinking of this Shivaji I think we should start maybe with Chris, who was at the 1990 signing. Um, what led to your being a part of that historic occasion in Washington, D.C.? Christos Palamis from Florence. Um,
6: what led to it? Uh, we had been working towards the ADA for a long, long time, and in a lot of different ways. And and Massachusetts, particularly Western Mass, has had our own history, you know, from uh um, the reform of um, Belchertown, moving people into the community. Belchertown being a state hospital where Belch- people were
0: institutionalized sometimes with disabilities for, for disabilities.
6: Yeah. So in, in Massachusetts, uh, we've always been one of the states that has tried to get ahead of the curve. And uh, in Western Mass, I always believe we've done it a little better. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we think the same thing.
6: <laughs> so we got invited to the White House, but um, so much went into it over, over 20 years. The
0: U.S. Constitution is largely modeled on the Massachusetts Constitution. Is the American with Disabilities Act, the federal law, largely based on the work that was done here? That uh,
6: sentence you... That paragraph you read so poetically. Oh my God, the way Layers write. Um, It (laughs) refers to the the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, the guarantee of equal opportunity, equal protection before the law. That's where the ADA comes from, as translated through the Civil Rights Act of 1964, taking specific language which has devolved, which has defined the modern rainbow of civil rights protections. And one of the wonderful things about where we are now is the use of the word intersectionality and the connection amongst the streams of the rainbow. I love it. That's Christos Palamis, who was at the signing of the ADA in
0: 1990, 23 years ago today. Let's talk with our friends digitally right now, Jeremy Dubbs and Maria Guarino. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Jer- Jeremy, you are the chairman. We're glad to have you. Uh, Maria <laughs> taught and worked in Northampton and uh, is a disability justice uh, studying disability justice at Teachers College in Columbia University now and is going to be running Jeremy Maycombe's campaign for Ward 4 City Council just announced. Uh, tell us a little bit about the work that you've done in Northampton, Jeremy.
4: Well, I moved to Northampton in 2004 uh, with my band with my bandmate and um I moved here as a musician, um, just here to play shows and, and you know, get better as a band. And over the years, like, I, I didn't consider myself an activist back then. Um, I didn't, or at least not consciously, you know, like, I, I think that what I was doing by playing music and putting myself out there um, was a form of activism, you know, um, in a way that, like, I was trying to, like, show people that disabled people are capable of doing things, you know, like music and art. And so that's how I was, you know... What I, how I started. And then over time, I kind of just, I kept noticing how things were so inaccessible in the town that I'm living in, in Northampton. I've lived here for 18 years now, and um, now and, uh, one year, a few years, uh, a few years ago, I, 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 I talked about the snow removal in Northampton, and how, how terrible it is, like, for people with disabilities in the wintertime. It's really hard to leave, even leave the house, and you end up having to ride in the, in the middle of the street in your wheelchair, and um, it's been going on for years, and so I joined the disability commission about th- about three and a half years ago, and um just been trying to to push for a more accessible northampton and um yeah, so I became an activist over time just just because like there was no other choice and um last year, we held a march and a, and a rally um through Northampton for the just to raise awareness for disability rights and it was a really successful rally, and I met a lot of big people through it, so yeah.
0: What about you, Maria? Tell us about your relationship. What, what's inspired you to be studying uh, disability justice at Teachers College at Columbia?
3: Yeah, um, I would like to just echo a lot of what Jeremy said. Um, our paths, like, crossed in a really, like, perfect way. Um, I was living in North Canton working and um, working, teaching and Actually, um my apartment overlooked kind of um mainstream I was living with of a local burger, um and I had just gotten fired from my job for having epilepsy, um, which is illegal. Um, but so frequently happens. I think any disabled person can tell you that even though we have this very, very important law that Yes, was put into place 33 years ago and started with the Civil Rights Act and just built and built on all of these kind of organizing and marching. Um, it still, is; we still have a really kind of long way to go. So this had just happened and I was very frustrated and kind of trying to figure out my next move. And I stepped outside for a coffee at the and I heard a voice. I was like, excuse me, um, could you grab my coffee? And I looked over and it was Jimmy And I was like, Sure. Um, so I grabbed his coffee at because they had forgotten to
7: put it at the inaccessible at the accessible um, entrance. And so I grabbed his coffee. Like I was like, oh, I've never seen him before. I wasn't really aware that there were many disabled people in Northampton because the structures do make it so. So we aren't really able to connect. Um, so then the next week, I saw on Instagram that there was this huge rally, and I said, oh. I know him. And I said, I messaged him and I said, you probably don't remember, um, but I grabbed your coffee last week. Like, um, I would really love to meet. Like, I want to meet. And he said, yes, of course I remember. Like, let's meet. And we just started a really important friendship. And Jeremy became my best friend. Um, so we kept talking. And and um, I think, again, as anyone community knows, um, fostered something very real and, you know, we kept joking, like, you know, you got to be mayor, like, you're the next mayor. (laughs) And so then um, at dinner two weeks ago, uh, I said, hey, like, there's there's a place opening up, like, you should run for city councilor. And he said, okay, so we quickly got it together. In a few days, we got a few, we got the 50 signatures he needed. And even though it's been a lot of work, like, we knew that this kind of had to happen. And, um, like, he's been doing the work for 20 years, that he's been living here and doing art and making the really important connections and just kind of, like, continuing that, um, you know, making those connections that are very real, so... Yeah, um, that didn't answer the question about what I do, but that's kind of how our connection started. And it's connection. really It's been really important for me and for us.
0: That's Maria Guarino, who is studying disability justice at Teachers College at Columbia University. Again, still
1: counts.
7: Yes.
0: Well, still counts. We have a couple of other guests in the studio with us, but we should probably take a little break, and then we'll introduce you to them and the work that they're doing. We're celebrating the Americans with Disabilities Act from a 413-focused angle here. We're speaking with Christos Palames, Jeremy Makeover Dubs, Lynn Horan, Ria Guarino, and Shivaji Kumar.
1: You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NAPM.
6: The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com.
1: Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. We are celebrating the anniversary of the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act today on our show with our guest, Christos Palamis. Jeremy McElroy Dubs, Maria Guarino, and we're about to introduce you to Lynn Horan, who is a Holyoke-based visual artist, teacher, activist, public school arts advocate, and vice chair of the Holyoke Commission on Disability. I want to say, like, you've been mentioning since you've been here, we've had a chance to talk a little bit, but I've seen a little bit of your art and you've been mentioning your struggles with MS. Like, how did you come to be, I mean, I feel like everybody in this field comes to be an advocate and activist because of just living. You have to advocate for yourself in a world that refuses to advocate for you, even with acts like this. But how has it been going being on the commission
5: of disabil- on disability in Holyoke? Well, that's... Almost a whole nother story, (laughs) given Holyoke's demographic, incredible population, but also one of a lot of need. Um, And of course, as um, we all know, or those of us disabled or involved in activism related to it, that um, we are the largest marginalized group globally, nationally, in Massachusetts, Um, and we are the most diverse, and Holyoke is certainly a city of diversity. It's one of the reasons I chose when we uh, located to Western Mass to move um, because of that diversity. Um, And we know statistically that if you are low-income, if you are Latino, If you are black, if you are indigenous American, or if you are LGBTQ, you are more likely to become disabled. And much of that has nothing to do with anatomy as much as it does with society and discrimination. So back to your question, um, Holyoke has had its own history of transformations and issues with all those marginalized groups. They are also the very people that enrich my city. Um, And so we're kind of trying to pull ourselves a little more forward um, in really representing the true population that Holyoke is now. Um, In terms of the arts, um, I'm an artist that believes that art is largely autobiographical, whether you intend it to be or not. Musician, theater, theater visual arts. We make our work in the context of our time, our popular culture, economics, government, etc. So it has a way of seeping in. I've been doing activism in a lot of areas. Um, as you've mentioned long before I got to that of disability, even though I've been disabled for 36 years. Since I was in my 20s, I'm now in my 60s. Um, and I think I thought it was selfish of me to go too much into a subject that was too much about me. Most disabled people, um, we learn from society that we will be accepted and not rejected by employers, by family, by lovers, by friends, etc. if we don't let it show too much. And we develop very strong personalities. Um, because of it, I think. Um, so that was part of my reason for coming into it late. And then because I was so interested in these other marginalized groups, I'm thinking of what Christos just said, um, that um, that sort of inner um, connection, and I'm blanking on due to MS brain uh, vocabulary <laughs> issues at the moment— the word for transitioning across these different marginalized groups, and particularly because ours is so diverse. Um, We can't address it without addressing those things, too. And while that makes it complex, it's a very good thing. That is also in my art. My art is a place where I do both. When I try to compartmentalize it, I get in trouble and there's not enough hours in the day.
0: (laughs) And that's good, that intersectionality. Don't compartmentalize it. Go across those boundaries. Exactly. That's Lynn Horan, who is part of the Holyoke Commission on Disability, and the instigator of this celebration of the Americans with Disabilities Act today is Shivaji Kumar from Amherst, who specifically deals with digital accessibility. Thank you once again for being on the show. Tell us a little bit about ways that the Americans with Disabilities Act has improved your life in in your time since its signing, and maybe some of the ways that you think it needs to be implemented better, especially where we
8: live here in Western Mass.? Sure. Um, So, thank you, Monty, for inviting me. Um, So, anything I say, it's my own opinion and not that of my current or former employers. We Uh, have to say that a lot, too, and we have (laughs) underwriters
0: We have to fully disclose. Totally understand it.
8: (laughs) Uh, So, um, well, I have been a beneficiary of ADA in multiple ways, and um, one of the major points uh, of that um, Civil Rights Act uh, was to provide equal employment opportunities and you know um, I am uh, visually impaired and um, so get an employment uh, for someone who who cannot see and had uh, lots of ambitions in life uh, that was a big challenge mm. Um so um, so the So the ADA provisions have really given me a window into pursuing my professional life. I was previously um, a professor, faculty, uh, teaching political science, got a PhD. Uh, In that process, I was given all kinds of assistance because of ADA provisions as a graduate student. And then when it came to changing my career, again, I could, even dream of or think of changing my career. Think about, you know, someone who is struggling to get his first job, I was, I had the opportunity to switch my career and move into digital accessibility. So that, that for someone who is visually impaired, that's very rare and very difficult to um, go through. where where um, where the ADA falls short, um, today uh, is is um, uh, where, where I'm currently focusing on, and that is the digital part of it. Um, there are two things. One, uh, the policy hasn't really kept up with the technology. So you know, technology has moved on. ADA was signed back in 1990. Um, There was nothing, uh, something called web at the time. However, since then, technology has evolved. There is web everywhere in our lives. Um, There are mobile applications and there are um, virtual realities that we all use to play games and all that. So all these new avenues that have opened up through technology uh, have, have really challenged the original provisions of ADA. And, you know, um, in the recent past, uh, the policy has tried has tried to keep up with the uh, technology, but then, you know, we, we are still, uh, I would say maybe a decade behind uh, in terms of our policy accommodations. So, um, <clears throat> but um, one good thing is that uh, the Biden administration is really making big strides, I would say. And that is that, you know, um, just yesterday, the attorney general announced that um, they would move forward with uh, Title II of the uh, Title Two of the ADA that relates to state and local governments for them to be digitally accessible. Um, They are moving toward uh, the rulemaking process. So that's a really, really big, big step. And that would impact us um, not just here in the state, but also here in the Western Massachusetts.
0: Also worth noting, and Shivaji sent me this before the show today, that Governor Healy signed an executive order establishing a digital accessibility and equity governance board. Uh, That was just today. Also worth noting that right before the show, uh, Senator Cumberford, who was our guest earlier this week, introduced six new pieces of legislation that are pertaining to accessibility and ADA in honor of this month, in honor of this day, in honor of the legend of the uh, the anniversary of the signing in, in 1990.
1: But one area where I keep hearing that there are significant gaps beyond digital is academia. I was talking with uh, another person, about with Nadia Adame of Axis Dance Company, about how disabled dancers aren't always able to pursue the major that they'd like because someone in a class takes a look at them and it goes, I don't know what to do here. And that, in general, academia is falling about as far behind as we've been saying digital rights are. Have How do people... I'm not entirely sure how to format this question, I think, but it's open to everybody. Like, has people's experience in in academia or with academia been in similar veins? That was phrased that was poorly, first. but hopefully somebody will get this. Let
8: me take, Let a, me crack take crack a crack at, at. that. Wonderful, okay. thank she you. Shivaji, taking a crack at <laughs> it. Uh, yeah, you're right that, you know, um, we in academia, uh, Think that we are um, far ahead of society because we are the most educated PhDs, and we are also in the business of training the next generation of our society, right? So we obviously have to be at the cutting edge of whatever the next next best is. Um, however, what ends up happening though is that we 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 are too much uh, steeped into where we were trained. Originally, you know, I got my Ph.D. in uh 2012. And, you know, my faculty, my professors got their Ph.D.s in 90s. Mm. Now, the ability to move forward and keep pace with the latest changes, not just in the technology, but also in the society. Um, that's where uh, we, we sort of fall behind. And so you're right that you know um, dancers with disabilities uh, often encounter this um, stereotype or bias um, from not just from the students but also from the faculty in many ways. So I've worked with faculty uh, to make things accessible but and, uh, and I've also been a faculty myself. Um, I encountered similar situations um, when I was going up for my job, first job, but also when I was working with faculty as an accessibility, accessibility specialist.
0: I see uh, Christos Palamis is uh, also uh, anxious to say something about this topic. So before we take a break, what, what do you have to add about academia and accessibility? Oh, Maria has uh, something to say, too. So yeah. we'll, we'll hit you both. Christos first.
6: First, um, higher education is the royal road, right, of progress. And we've had history in the Commonwealth, and it was where I met the governor when she was assistant attorney general for civil rights. And part of the biggest was the Commonwealth had documented its own noncompliance. The first priority, higher education. The studies, a lot of the things that were identified as needed years ago, still sit on the desks of that beast of bureaucracy that our incredible group, of women who are now um, transforming state government need to move forward. Senator Comerford, Governor Healy, Lieutenant Governor Driscoll, our Attorney General Andrea Campbell who was here last week. Um, But the important thing is we can moan about who didn't get it and who didn't get it Progress is a contact sport, and that's why, you know, we try to get people to join commissions on disabilities. I wish we were turning down eight out of, you know, ten who applied to do it. We need people to get out, get involved, and each of us will develop, because of our disability and our concerns, kind of a specialty within the big picture. That's Christos Palamis, who was there at the signing
0: of the 1990 ADA law, which we're celebrating today on the Fabulous 413. Before we take a break, Maria Gorino, you want to add to this conversation about higher ed and accessibility?
6: Yeah,
7: um, I think that we often think of disability um, as a deficit that we have you know, within our physical bodies and minds, something that we are born with or that happens to us from an accident or that's genetic, something that went wrong. Um, But, you know, if we look to history and how our understandings of bodies and minds have really changed over time, we might see how that really changes this very medical understanding of disability that we hold to. So um, just really quick, a very good example of this is the diagnosis of drapedomania, which was invented by Samuel A. Cartwright before the Civil War. So he claimed that this was a mental di- uh, mental disorder that caused slaves to run away from their enslavers and he asserted like through the use of science statistics logic reasons medical data that there were mental and bodily differences between black people and white people and he thought as did many others that drapedomania caused black slaves to run away be deviant misbehave so when we look back, right, we can clearly see that Cartwright's misuse of data and a you know a full construction of a disability, um, he was using what was desired by the power majority of the time to color slaves into obedience. So if we bring that here to today in 2023. It's very interesting to like ask questions about disability labels themselves that we still are upholding and wonder like what that might mean and how medically they're rooted. So we might think about like ADHD, emotional disturbance, oppositional defiance, bipolar, and then the support that they these labels bring with them. And it's very important to ask like who these disability labels aim to control who they label as disobedient, deviant, defiant, rebellious, and most importantly, deficit, which gender categories, which races, along which class division, and what that means for our schools, our workplaces, our communities. So that kind of brings me and Jeremy to say like, disability, it's not a biological fact. And ableism is embedded in everything. Ableism affects everybody, not just disabled people. So just really quick for your break, bringing us to the Supreme Court decision and affirmative action, which very much affects higher education. So it's not really about the access. You know, I can tell you all about accommodations, the accommodations I don't get in my doctoral program at Teachers College, but it's more like who's not getting into those programs. It's not just about disabled people. It's about the black people not getting into the, to, to the programs, the people who are not able to afford them the GRE test, Jeremy just got his first ID ever, his first government ID ever last week. And there's a reason for that. So I think those are the kinds of questions we want to ask about the construction of disability in our society.
0: That is Maria Guarino. More of our celebration of the American with Disabilities Act on the other side of the break. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to the fabulous four one three. We are commemorating the anniversary, the twenty third anniversary of the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act, with a bunch of disability activists and advocates from the area: Christos Palamas, Jeremy Dubs, Lynn Horan, Maria Guarino, and Shivaji Kumar. Jeremy, who's just announced his candidacy for Ward Four City Council in Northampton, this is not a campaign speech, but this is—it's indicative about why this is why you wanted to get involved in more than just the Northampton Disability Commission. Um, it, why? an experience you've had in a place that many of us have been uh, Thorns Marketplace Jeremy can you tell us what happened with you uh, at Thorns and, and how it came to uh, in some ways an understanding of, of the experiences that people in wheelchairs go through
4: so um, be- before I go into it I just I think that this is a good story to tell on the anniversary of the ADA because it shows that yes the ADA was a, a very effective law but that we still have a lot more work to do because um, there's still lots of Places that use ADA as an excuse to not be, to not be more accessible because, when once a, when a business is told, like a, if a fire department and the business the building inspector they all tell you that you're ADA, ADA compliant, then you're good. So like so, even if like you know your place isn't fully accessible, you can say you're ADA compliant and get away with it. So basically, I, the other day at Thorns Market, um, a friend of mine asked me if I wanted to get some ice cream at Harrell's. So I, I you know I thought that was a good idea and it was a nice day so we went to get Harold's. and um, we and so so for listeners that don't know Harold's has some, um, it has a flight of stairs on the outside the front entrance, so um, so there's no way for disabled people to get in that way which is fine because they have a, an entrance through thorns that lets people in through the the other door on the inside of thorns so that's that's the way we went in and um it was about 6 45 p.m what we were not aware of is that at 7 p.m they closed that door they closed the accessible door and they lock it and um so if you're already in heralds if you're a disabled person who's already in Harrells, when they lock that door you have no way of getting out of the building at all so that's and my friend and i discovered it that day we didn't know that that was going to happen we we got our ice cream we went to the to exit the door and there wasn't even a knob on the door like, we couldn't even come close to opening it so basically the security guard uh he we had to get we had to get in touch with the security guard which took a few minutes he came to the door um, he was very very rude to me I tried to just explain to him that the the, the policy is not the policy to close the door at 7 p.m is 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 dangerous for disabled people it puts their lives in jeopardy if there were a fire I wouldn't have been able to get out of the building he proceeded to be really rude to me so I threw my ice cream at him which you know I don't condone that I don't think it's <laughs> mature to throw your ice cream at people. But I didn't know how else to react in that moment. And he told me to get the F the F out of the building. That's how he reacted, instead of being empathetic with me. So basically, you know and I can tell you I can guarantee you that Thorns and Harrels are technically ADA compliant. So you know, so that's that's my message here, basically. It
0: did come to a peaceable resolution with them the next day, is that right?
4: It is true, yes. I talked to the manager the next day and he apologized for the behavior of the security guard and he promised me that they would, you know, try to do something about it. But, you know, to this day, it still is that way. You know, the policy still stands that disabled people can't get inside Herald's past seven, even though they're open till 11 p.m. Well,
0: we only have a minute left in the show, and maybe we'll begin where uh, where we started, well, end where we started with Chris Palamas, who was at the 1990 signing. You've said, Chris, that um, it's a process, that you're going to give it a try. This building is not as this new building that we're in
6: here at NEPM, not as accessible as we would like it to be. Yeah. Civil rights law is a toolbox. It doesn't snap into place. The challenges never end, you know, and you pick your fights. The couple minutes um, we've got, I have to say, we're coming out of the pandemic. The evidence of the work we have to do is the death of 77 veterans in Holyoke. That's the failure of the whole thrust of the ADA was making living in the community possible. And that also means not getting displaced as you age, not having your families impoverished. One of the things that an initiative um, we're gonna be saying more about in the next few weeks is gonna be looking at the disparity of what happened to community of colors below the tofu curtain. Which is why we're glad to have Lynn Horne, who is from
0: the Holyoke Disability Commission here with us on this anniversary. That was the voice of Christos Palamas. Jeremy makeover Dubs, Maria Guarino, and Shivaji Kumar, who assembled uh, this wonderful group today. Thank you so much. Yeah. Tomorrow on the Fabulous 413, we'll talk to a farmer who was spared from the worst of it and hear how those farmers are pitching in to help the farmers who were flooded. We'll go to Bardwell Farm in Hatfield. And we'll take you back to Jacob Pillow and Je- Beckett to talk with director Pam Tadji. And McGoverning with McGovern. Got a question for the congressman? TheFab413 at NEPM.org. Or text 1 800 639
1: 9120. Quick reminder always look at your room and see who is missing.
0: Yeah. Thank you all so much for doing this. We'll see you tomorrow. Oh, I want to mention that all of the music for this part has been from Jeremy Dubs, either with his work with Pixies or with his work with Bunnies. He's an incredible musician. Go see Bunnies when you can. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Glees Smith. See you tomorrow on the Fabulous 413.